You'll find Esther chapter 3 on page 503 there in the Bible in the pew, and that's where we'll be beginning this morning, but we'll also have a a look at chapter 4 as we move quite quickly through this book. Let's pray. Father God, we have just been thinking and singing of how our hope rests in you. Lord, so many of the grounds for our hope are found in the promises and in the the teaching of your word. So we pray that you'd come and be with us this morning as we spend a few moments again looking at these, uh, these ancient stories which are so pressingly relevant for us today. Lord, we pray that we would find the same hope here that your people throughout all generations have found. Speak to us by your Spirit, from your Word, we pray. Amen. Last week we began what's going to be a short series in the book of Esther, and we learned uh, about Esther, who, who gives the book its name, and her cousin Mordecai. They were two Jews in the small Jewish community living in exile in Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire. We learned last week in chapter 1 how Vashti, the the queen of the empire, was deposed. And in chapter 2, we learn how Xerxes, the king, chose Esther, this Jewess, to replace her. We were interested last week when we began to look together at the book of Esther to see particularly how God's people, the Jews, would fare when they lived in exile. And that's not just a theoretical or an intellectual question for us, because we recognized at the start of our series, at the start of our sermon last week, that we, who are trying to live for Jesus Christ in 2007 in Britain, are people who live in exile. We're no longer the mainstream of our society. Britain is no longer, in any convincing way, a Christian country. So very much like the Jews living in Susa, a minority living in a pagan community, we're faced with the same issues and the same questions. Can we survive in exile? Now, it's one thing I would suggest for a community to live in exile. That's, that's a daunting prospect at the best of times. But it's another thing altogether when we face extinction. And while chapters 1 and 2 of Esther tell the story of God's people in exile, chapters 3 and 4, which we'll look at this morning, tell the story of God's people facing extinction. Let's pick up the story in the opening verses here of chapter 3. We're introduced immediately to a new character. Xerxes has promoted Haman, son of Hamadath, the Agagite, to second in command in the whole empire. The royal officials are all told, you've got to bow down to Haman. He, He is the man. And despite the king's commands, Mordecai the Jew won't do it. Now, why won't Mordecai bow? We're not told for sure, actually. Is it just sour grapes? Is he annoyed the way we sometimes are when somebody else in work gets the promotion that you thought 
was really coming your way. Mordecai has every reason to think he would have been the, the boy who was getting promotions in the king's court. Look back very quickly to chapter 2, verses 21 to 23. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gates, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and he told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. When the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. Now we don't know what Haman has done to deserve promotion to second in control of the whole empire. But Mordecai saved the king's life. And what does Mordecai get as a reward? The king writes it in his diary. Big deal. One guy gets to be second in command and the other guy gets a mention in the king's diary. You see why it's possible that, that, that Mordecai, maybe there's sour grapes in the, the background here. Maybe he couldn't bring himself to celebrate Haman's promotion because he knows it should have been his. The Bible's very, very honest about these things. If that was Mordecai's reason for being grumpy, he'd actually find lots of support for his, his point of view in the biblical text. The Bible allows people to ask questions. God, why do you promote wicked people while the godly aren't advanced? For example, in Jeremiah 12, the prophet asks, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? And sometimes it feels that way. Sometimes it feels the people who are finding life most difficult, who, who are getting the hardest time, unexpectedly maybe, are the very people who are trying to live faithfully for God. All those who don't give a stuff for God, get ahead, do well, and live an easy life. And maybe that's the question that's crossing Mordecai's mind when Haman the Agagite is promoted to a life of wealth and of power in the kingdom. And it's a question that can't easily be answered without the benefit of hindsight. Mordecai's going to have to do here what you and I and any other person has to do in this context, and that is to wait and see and to trust in the living God, to trust that the judge of all the world will, in the end, do right. So it could be that Mordecai's refusal here is refusal to bow becomes out of a, a sour grapes. But it, it's very likely that there's more to it than that. The gap between the assassination attempt that we read about in chapter 2 and Haman's promotion could be as much as five years. So Mordecai's reason for not bowing to Haman, if it's simply sour grapes, that's not immediately obvious to the people around him. In verse 3, we find his colleagues asking him, why do you disobey the king's command? They ask him repeatedly to explain himself, but he refuses. To them, it's not obvious why he, he's refusing the king's command. 
The author doesn't tell us that Mordecai refused to bow before Haman because he was a Jew. He doesn't say as much, but it is implied. You see, Mordecai has been, a, he's been an official at the, at the city gate, and that means he's a fully integrated member of Persian society. Don't think of him here as some Jew sitting on the sidelines. He's a member of Susa City Council. He knows how things work in the city. He, he's probably in positions where he is bowing and deferring to other dignitaries. The impression you get when you read this and, and think carefully through it, there's some special reason why Mordecai has chosen not to bow to this particular person in the Persian Empire. There's some particular reason why Mordecai will not bow before Haman. And the clue to, to Mordecai's refusal lies in Haman's identity. In Hebrew narrative, you can tell a lot about a person by their introduction. The first time their name's mentioned, what, what's said about them? And it's a bit like if you're watching a film. If you listen carefully, the music, when a, a body arrives on the screen for the first time, sometimes tells you. And quite often, you know, in a particularly simple film, he might be wearing dark clothes and T-shirts that have been cut off at the shoulders. You know, there's a wee bit of that going on here. We can tell right away that Haman's a baddie because we're told that he's the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. We need to know who that, what that means. Agag was the king of the Amalekites at the time when Saul was the king of Israel. Now, the Amalekites, these guys have been a thorn in Israel's flesh since Israel was conceived as a nation. These guys have, have a, a dubious distinction in the whole of the biblical narrative. They're the first people who tried to wipe out the Jews. Do you remember the, the battle uh, when Aaron and Hur held the arms of Moses aloft? And whenever his arms were up, Israel won the battle, and when his arms fell, they began to, to lose. Do you remember that battle? Well, that was against the Amalekites. In Exodus chapter 17, we have a record of God's promise to Moses regarding the Amalekites. He says, I'll completely blot out the memory of the Amalek from under heaven. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. These people... The Amalekites are the enemy of God's people, the Jews. In this context, I don't think we'd be pushing things to say that the Amalekites are to the Jews what the Nazis of the 1930s and 40s were to the Jews. Do you see now who Haman is? He's a descendant of Agag. He's an Amalekite. He, that makes him anti-Semitic, an enemy of the Jews, and an enemy of God and his people. So Haman's confrontation here with Mordecai, it's not, about, it, it's not about power plays in the royal court. It's not about two people who have a personality clash. It's the age-old conflict between God's people, Israel, and those who stand against them who would see them exterminated, wiped out. 
And I think this interpretation is vindicated when we, when we move through the chapter much more quickly in verses 5 and 6. Whenever Mordecai, when, when Haman hears about Mordecai's refusal to bow, he's furious. He wants Mordecai put to death. Now, that's fair enough. But he knows by now that Mordecai's a Jew. And he sees here an opportunity for killing not just one man, but the whole nation. And we see here now this Amalekite and Jew struggle of these two nations. Haman wants the whole nation of Jews exterminated. Now, Haman's not only a dangerous man, but he's a clever man. And you can see that in how he deals with the king in the rest of the chapter. Look at verse 8. He tells the king about a people who won't obey his laws, but he doesn't say who they are. And he goes on without naming them, and he says, it's not in the best interests of the king to tolerate these people. He comes with a political agenda. He disguises his own personal agenda. And he even offers the king a huge cash injection for the treasury. He plays the king like a puppet on a string. And Xerxes, he ends up just the same as he was last week. He's somebody you can just play. You just tell him a few things and he ends up doing exactly what you you want them to do. And, And here he goes along with Haman. Haman's already decided the date on which he'd like to see the Jews wiped out. And we're told in verse 7 that the first month of Xerxes' 12th year, he cast the power, that's some dice that were used to determine the will of the gods. And on the 12th month, the 12th month, the month of Adar came up. This was the time when the Jews are going to be wiped out. Now, Haman's going to have to wait 11 months to put his plan into practice before the extermination of the Jews can go ahead. But he loses no time in sending out his command. So the rest of the chapter tells us about this command going through the empire. It all looks really ominous at the end of chapter 3 for God's people. I think even the closing sentence, it just wonderful understatement. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Haman's relaxed. He set his plan in motion. Nothing's going to stop it. He has a quiet drink with the king. The Jews throughout the empire are terrified. These exiled people now stand on the, dr- on the brink of distinction because the might of that whole Persian empire that we thought about last week is pitted against them and they're pretty much defenseless. The situation is bleak. And at this point in the story, there's not a lot of of let up from that. It's just bleak. But even here, there are glimpses that God is at work. Do you remember we've said about this book, don't expect to see God and his name plastered all over the story. Don't expect to see miracles and people saying, oh, that's great what you did here, God. That's not going to happen in this story. If God works here, it's going to be in gentle, behind-the-scenes, everyday sorts of ways. But even here, at the the dark end of chapter 3, we see a glimpse of that. We're told here that Haman's edict was sent out on the 13th day of the first month. 
you know when that is? That is the eve of the day of Passover. So Jews throughout the Persian Empire, even in the city of Susa, do you know what they're going to do tomorrow? The day when the edict arrives with them? They're going to celebrate together the Passover. A meal that reminds them of God, his, his incredible saving work when he brought them out of Egypt, when he saved them from the hand of Pharaoh, when he brought them through the Red Sea, when he made them for the first time a community of his people. They're going to remember all of that. And at the same time, a letter is going to land on their doorstep saying, by the way, 11 months from now, it's over. Who will they believe? Will they believe the edict of Haman sent through the Persian Empire that the people of God are to be extinguished? Or will they believe the God of the Passover? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who has stood with them through centuries and proved himself faithful to them? That's the question at the end of chapter 3. We'll spend just a, a last few minutes looking at what happens here in chapter 4. In the opening verses, we read of Mordecai's response when he hears the, the news. He goes into public mourning, we're told, and, and Jews all through the empire do that. They put on their sackcloth and their ashes, and they weep and they wail. Now, it's a bit disturbing, but Esther doesn't seem to even know what's going on. Don't think of her as some, uh, some wonderfully interested queen who's, who's looking after the, the good of her people. It doesn't seem to be the case. She sends a, a message to Mordecai saying, you know, what's, what's this you're up, so upset about? Here's some new clothes. And whenever he refuses, she sends one of her messengers to find out what's happening. She doesn't even know that her people are about to be wiped out. Whenever the messenger returns he tells Esther the whole story. He shows her a copy of the legislation. He says, there it is. There's the edict. This plan for the annihilation of the Jews. And he gives her a message from Mordecai. The messenger... Sorry, the, the, yes, the messenger returns to Esther. And he says, go to the king and beg for mercy for your people. Now Esther sends a message straight back to Mordecai explaining why she's not going to do that. I, I can't do that, Mordecai. That, that's not how things work here in the Persian court. There's a simple law here. Turn up before the king without an invitation and you're, you're killed. You don't do that. There's one exception. The king, if he wants, can reach out his scepter and save your life. But to go to the king uninvited is to risk your life. And I can't go. The king hasn't called me for 30 days. Esther's not just making hollow excuses here. The historians of the time tell us that this is exactly how the Persian court worked. The king had seven, seven guys around him who were called his friends. They were the only ones who were allowed to show up unannounced. If anyone else did, their life was very much in danger. So it's been 30 days since the king has called for Esther, and she's, she's just not willing to take that risk. 
Maybe she expects to be ignored. It's five years, by the way, since Esther first came into the king's presence when she was first made his wife. And maybe in a, in a harem culture, she hasn't managed to keep the king's interest five years down the line. She's just not confident that she has that kind of access to the king. Going to Xerxes just now without an invitation would be rash, laying her life on the line. But no sooner has Esther told Mordecai about her unwillingness to go to the king, then Mordecai sends a message back with an ultimatum. And you can read it in verses 12 to 15. He says, do not think that because you're in the king's household, you alone of all the Jews will escape. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance from the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you've come to a royal position for such a time as this. Let's spend a final moment or two just thinking about this. This situation that Esther finds herself in. Esther, when she hears that message, is faced with a life-defining moment, a life-defining decision. Will she do the thing that Mordecai is asking her to do, or won't she? I think it's a really, really complicated decision for her at this point in her life. I think she's going through a massive crisis of identity right here. Esther's the only person in this story who has two names. She's called Hadassah and she's called Esther. Hadassah, her Jewish name, Esther, the Persian name. I think the narrator does that on purpose to show us the two identities that she's living with, particularly at this early part in the story. You see, Esther's been brought up, Hadassah, a Jew. She's been brought up in the Jewish community, knowing of the Jewish God, part of the family of people who worship him. But now she's not living as a Jew. She's living as a pagan in the Persian court. And the truth is, she probably doesn't know where she stands. She probably doesn't know how she wants to live. And now for the first time, she's being confronted with this decision. What's it going to be, Esther? Are you Esther, the Persian queen of Xerxes? Or are you Hadassah, the Jew, a woman of the people of God? And up to this point in the story, the issue hasn't really come to a head. She's been content to live entirely submerged in that pagan culture around her. Remember, she's kept her Jewish identity hidden. She's been entirely passive. She's just ended up in the places where the currents around her have brought her. But now it's different. She's being asked to step out of the crowd, to identify herself with the Jews, to identify herself with God's people, to take responsibility for the call God has placed on her life. Friends, as I reflected on this for a few moments, it struck me that this is our big question also. For each one of us, this, this 
crisis of identity is very, very real to us. We're not sure, some of us this morning, who we are in relation to God. We're not sure. On the one hand, we're people who have maybe grown up in a church-going family. Maybe we take some strength from growing up in a Christian country. Even now, we're people who come to church and we find some, some, I don't know, comfort. We find it somewhat interesting to be here and to hear about the call of Jesus. But the truth is that our identity is being shaped entirely somewhere else. The truth is that we are the people of the culture around us. We're like Esther in the Persian court. We fit in and blend in in seamlessly with the pagan culture around us. Friends, I I think it's very likely that more than a small handful of us this morning are struggling with that identity crisis. We don't really know who we are. We don't know how we want to live in relation to the true and the living God. But now as we hear God's word, as we hear the challenge of it, like Esther, we're being called to decide. And the question for us is the same as the question for Esther. Will you continue to hide away, to do the safe thing, to fit in looking exactly like the people around you who don't know or love God? Or will you respond to the call of Jesus Christ on your life? Will you turn from empty and godless living? Will you stand out from the crowd and identify yourself? No matter whether there's ridicule with that or or even danger, will you come out and identify yourself with the people of God? That's the question Mordecai's posed to Esther, and it's the question we face, each one of us. In the end, Esther chooses to go with God. She asks Mordecai, she answers Mordecai and and asks him to pray for her. She says in verse 16, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, day or night. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I'll go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Esther has come out, out from the pagan Persian court. She's going to identify herself with the people of God. She's going to throw her lot in with all those people in the world who are trusting God, she doesn't know what the outcome of that will be. If I perish, I perish. But I choose to go with God. What choice have you made in that regard? Have you chosen definitively and finally to go with Jesus Christ? Or are you still living hidden away, anonymous, in a godless 
pagan culture. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the honesty of your word about the complexity of the places we can find ourselves in. Lord, we thank you even for this this point of identification that we have with Esther. Lord, we know what it is to live in a society that doesn't love and fear and follow you. And Lord, today we've heard your call to, to leave that and to identify ourselves clearly and finally with you and your people. Lord, some of us have taken that step in a small way. Lord, help us to be more convinced in it and to live it more clearly. Lord, others of us have lacked the courage to do that. Lord, would you help us? Help us to see that living life with you, following Jesus Christ, is the only and the best way to live. Help us to be willing to risk ridicule and even danger, if that be our lot. But Lord, help us not to forgo the opportunity to identify ourselves with you as people of God. Lord, make us your people in this place regardless of what goes on in this world around us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.